0: Okay, chaps, got a question for you. What's the worst job you've ever had?
1: My first job, uh, had to do it in college. I worked at a Pathmark. I started out in the butcher shop, then I went into the deli, and it was really hard, annoying work for pennies on the, just a pittance, just no money at all, being abused by just absolute assholes. All day long, it was it was just torture. And the second I was able to get a job that wasn't that that paid me better, I was gone. I didn't even give him two weeks. I just said I quit. Bye. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't wear. I wouldn't wish that job on my worst enemies.
2: I had this idea. Uh, I I was a freelance writer. Um, I still have such aspirations. But I had this idea that I guess we were all kind of raised with in the 90s, this very Horatio Alger idea of working your way up from the mailroom. So I took a job at a newspaper, at a local, fairly large newspaper, uh, because the thing that they had promoted so heavily was the idea of upward mobility. So I took a job being a collator. And what a collator is, is uh, you are in this large, essential, essentially factory setting, And the newspapers are all going through real quick on a conveyor belt, and you are simply loading stacks of advertisements into a machine, and then they go through one by one and get sorted into the various papers. And that's it. There's no real direct interaction with your labor. It's not even like you're opening the papers and putting them in. All you're doing for hours on end is picking up uh, stacks of advertisements and then loading them into a machine and letting the machine do the work. It was the most dehumanizing experience in a way i think i really i had worked service industry jobs and blue collar jobs before but i I had never really felt so despondent there was nothing to do there was nothing to even occupy my mind just going through the motions for hours on end and because it was a factory situation that had you know you experienced both sides of it you experienced the the uh sort of exploitation of labor or the mindlessness of labor dehumanization alienation but but also stagnation due to union efforts at that point they had a labor union that was basically just allowing all that really had to offer was hey we'll give you a 15 minute break to go along with your 10 minute break um but it kept so many people working there who had no interest in the job and were surly and unpleasant. Yeah, it was such a, an experience. And, and it's one of those things that gives you the illusion of upward mobility. But, they, you know, in two years, there was never any way to move up. The, the jobs that uh, the higher up jobs that you wanted always went to the, the rich kids who had internships anyway. So I, I guess I kind of got a real taste in that and a taste that I think everyone should have to a degree of just how expendable and disposable one can feel as a cog in a machine. So that's probably the the worst uh, job I ever had, and I I hope ties into our conversation.
1: I mean, my job was so bad, I'd get so angry at the end of a shift. One time I almost got into a fistfight with another driver on the highway, because I was just like, fuck it. You want to start with me right now? I'll show you who you start with. I don't Um, give a fuck. I hate um, my life.
2: Now, now, Tom, full disclosure, you also do that if a game of Madden doesn't go your way, so... (laughs)
0: All caught up in the daily grind, join us for 1936's Modern Times here on You're Missing Out with special guest Riley Solliner.
2: I am really excited for this one, guys. I am so happy. Uh, You know him as an actor and comedian from The Chris Gethard Show. Chris Gethard presents Klon, and now you can see him every Saturday morning on Planet Scum Live doing his show Googie Morning. Riley Soliner has joined us today to talk about uh, modern times. Riley, thank you so much for coming on.
3: Thanks for having me. Hello. All right. Yeah. Welcome, welcome. thanks for having me
2: a little bit about why uh i invited you on for this particular film i am a huge fan of your work i loved especially clon which is a show you did uh for folks who don't know on chris Guthrie presents the public access show it was a trilogy of of episodes uh where you played a a robot in a a robot that sort of gains sentience over the course of the the trilogy is that a
3: a fair assessment of that one sure yeah um yeah, it is <laughs> classic robot story. And
2: uh, you and I were talking, I think last year, and uh, how much I enjoyed it. And you had said, "Oh, do you have any movies that you recommend uh, watching? You know, to for future installments." And I had named a couple, but I didn't even think to name Modern Times because, to me, I remember watching, especially that first installment, and feeling there was such a, a you know a commonality there with uh, you know the way that they both kind of reflect the loss of identity through industrialism uh, and even to the little things where both things end with a character singing a song with no actual lyrics yeah that i was like well obviously he's you know of course that's something you know that was a huge influence on this so i'm not going to bring that up and then when i reached out to you and i said hey i would love to have you on to talk about this film i was pleasantly surprised to hear you hadn't uh you had not seen the film before
3: that's right yeah i mean i'm kind of lazy with my influences you know like um (laughs) I, I like, you know, clown is, is I mean, I, I, I came up with the character after doing a little bit of uh, training with, with uh, theatrical clowning. And so passion is there. And I feel like I have experienced through a lot of the goofy work that I've done over the years, a uh, lot of comedic professional wrestling. I played a referee, so I was always reacting to people's physicality and, you know, trying to make it like a unique fit for what I do. And, but, you know, like I have like respect, but not a lot of dis, not a lot of... uh I want to say like specific knowledge about the canon that I respect so much. You know, like I've read Harpo Marx's autobiography, which is terrific, but I'm not, you know, I can't tell you what my favorite Marx Brothers movie is. Chaplin, of course, is like iconic and a genius when it comes to mixing the physical comedy with being able to tell a universal story of the times. But I just, I had never seen modern times before. So yeah. And one thing that I as I was watching Modern Times today and I was trying to think about where Klon and Modern Times overlap is I kind of felt like modern times is the story of someone losing or like holding on to the humanity that they're losing due to industrialization and the Great Depression. And I feel like Klon as a story is almost like a mirror image where you have the product of this fucked up hyper you know 100 years later industrialization gaining humanity over time
2: well i want to start i want to start the discussion off uh, as we always do where i'm just going to read what the national film registry wrote as their reason for inducting the film and then we're gonna we're gonna get into it and there's a lot of interesting stuff with this despite its loose structure this film charlie chaplin's last silent coherently and comically denounces the industrialization of everyday life Chaplin achieves a near perfect balance of humor and pathos and his scenes with paulette goddard in particular reflect genuine warmth and maturity it's interesting to note what they state there that this was his last to a degree silent film of course there's sound in it it is also the last appearance of the little tramp this would be the last time that that character would appear in one of his films sometimes people think that the tramp is in the great dictator but in fact in that film the two characters he's playing the jewish barber has a name and of course uh the Hitler parallel Adenoid Henkel has a name. So this is also the last appearance of the tramp, and it is I I would say it, it's it's certainly an interesting path that the chaplain's on uh when he makes this film. Uh you were mentioning, Riley, the the Great Depression, and that was it was certainly a factor. It's interesting too that this film comes out in 36. By 1936 sound had already been in film for close to ten years, and he still uh stuck to his guns and decided to make a, a silent comedy which i think is uh remarkable and the fact that it becomes one of his most celebrated films at a time where every other silent comedian was completely out of the game i think is a really impressive testament to his his
3: craft yeah this was kind of like uh like uh yeah let me let me put the nail in the coffin on silent film on my terms that's kind of the that's my chaplain impression
1: oh my god it's almost like he's back from the dead <laughs> yeah yeah
3: let me let me let yeah guys let me show you how it's done all right
1: <laughs> <laughs> well it's almost like uh this movie is in and of itself in real life, kind of like what the movie's saying. It's almost like, well, industrialization's here, and, well, silent movies are dead now, so I guess we gotta get our stuff and walk down the road and see what we can make out of things. And he didn't, have the worst time after this right oh, i mean because the great he, dictators after this yeah but then he was hunted
2: by huac and, and uh exiled from the country for being a suspect right, well, communist, that, was, so, you well know. that wasn't ju-
1: that wasn't just specifically him that no, was literally but, just the, the world ended for but it's you know actors it's worth noting that
2: that the reason he was exiled was because modern times is the result of him becoming much more outspoken politically um the fact is when he there was a great book you know rightly mentioned harpo marx's biography i just picked up and read for the first time a book that was only published two years ago uh based on articles he wrote in the 30s when chaplin was releasing city lights which was his film before modern times uh even then 1931 sound had already been around for five years he was concerned that a silent movie wouldn't sell so he embarked on a world tour to uh promote the movie But while he was on the tour, uh, which he chronicled in this book that is called A Comedian Sees the World, while he was on this tour, he saw firsthand the effects of global poverty and the effects of the Great Depression. And to put it in terms that we now use on social media, but he wouldn't have used at the time, he essentially became what you could call radicalized in that way. He started reading a lot of socialist philosophy and economic philosophy, Keynesian economics, and became very, very interested in that. And it was this tour, uh, this particular tour, seeing England, France, and meeting with, while he was on this tour, he was so celebrated, he met with Mahatma Gandhi and Albert Einstein and all of these great figures. While he was on this tour, uh, that is what shaped the story that we have of modern times. He didn't, he wasn't necessarily so politically inclined. Then he makes this film, which ended up uh, causing him much distress later when uh the house of american activities committee decided to paint it as a an overtly communist film which he maintained throughout his life uh he he didn't have a particular political alignment he was just trying to appeal to the common man uh and you can really see that in the in the book where he's just traveling around and seeing the the, the world and the, the
3: state of it that's incredible that's so cool well he's i mean
2: it's there's you know not i and i promise i will stop going on this uh, criterion essay in a that's moment that's
3: incredible that's so cool
2: one of the things you could watch modern times and just watch it from you know an ahistorical perspective there's also some interesting things where it to me watching it it cannot be an accident that the film seems to lean so heavily into and i promise i will get less uh you know (laughs) uh, uh, academic in a moment but it leans so heavily into the marx theory of alienation which is Karl marx's theory of alienation the idea of that industrialism alienates the worker from the product from the the production aspect and also alienates them from themselves i mean that that moment uh to get into the film specifically the invention of the feeding machine isn't just a gag to make him look funny but it's this idea of that the the company this industry is so desperate to rob them of their humanity that it will not even allow them to eat or use the restroom without still working
3: sure we see that we see that a lot today i'll take it a step further because really close to the beginning of the film when the little tramp is uh he's tightening those bolts on the on the assembly line, and uh you see him walk away from the assembly line and he still has the tick and he's still he's still moving his arms like he's tightening the bolts. And it's just a very quick, very effective, very simple illustration that this work beats you down and controls you to such a degree that you can't stop when you're supposed to. And then he, you know, he's trying to keep up and people are chastising him for slowing down and arguing and everything like that. And he gets sucked inside the machine. The line that I wrote down was, he went inside the machine and came out different because he goes through the gears like one of the most iconic images of the movie and then he they reverse the machine and he gets sucked right back out and he's full clown at that point he's tightening everything he's tightening people's hats and you know women's uh, nipples and just you know finding bolts everywhere you know and i feel like that is just another effective comical metaphor for uh, just being caught up in that that labor system you know that from from just being in the factory in general and and his body moving a certain way to being fully uh caught up in the the literal machine and then coming out not giving a fuck about anybody's humanity and just going for it and then having to be put into a mental hospital
2: now an interesting thing about that moment with the gears i found this out um through uh the criterion collection release the film is that That was actually supposed to be close to the end of the film when Chaplin originally shot it. His original plan for the film was actually a much sadder version of the story where uh, the tramp would work the factory, he'd go on his adventure, but then he would go back to the factory, which is the gear sequence would have been his second time there. That would have caused him to have a nervous breakdown. And then when he was in the hospital, the Paulette Goddard character was supposed to show up, but now she had become a nun. Nursing him back to health and then sending him off on his way to walk down the road alone. But Chaplin changed his mind and decided to make it a more optimistic ending, uh, which is why this is the first and only time that the tramp does not walk away alone at the end. He walks off with Paulette Godard into the sunset. And the whole restaurant sequence, the whole singing thing was a, a late addition to the film, which he actually lifted from an earlier film he had made called The Rink way back in 1916 but he felt that it needed a laugh at the end it needed some optimism there
3: absolutely yeah closing it out with a with some fireworks a musical number and then something to, some kind of though it's like a, it's optimistic by the end it's 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 uh it's it's simple but it's just to keep going to survive to have a companion that kind of thing it's nice
2: i'm glad you're this because i think the thing that's fascinating about this film in particular because people have complained about other chaplin films uh, especially his later films that become too uh, they call the term was used at the time even of preachy there was some maybe not great reception to the speech at the end of the great dictator that we now all recognize as great but at the time um so people were and then when you get to his later films when he actually starts making sound films like monsieur vidot uh ends with this giant broad speech that it's an indictment of well you know if the natural endpoint of diplomacy is war then the natural endpoint of capitalism is murder and this whole thing and it's very whereas this film strikes such a brilliant balance and i was thinking about um what you do with your show you started doing a show on on planet scum the the twitch channel uh the chris Gather twitch channel called googie morning and once you, you were figuring out what the show was, and once there was this massive social upheaval in the country you really made an effort to kind of put the show in a direction where you alternate seemingly every week between something that is fun and silly and then something that is kind of socially inclined you know, one one week you're doing juggling, and the next week you're doing a book club on on our prisons obsolete or something like that. And I thought yeah. that was so such an interesting parallel to the way that this film uh, attempts to kind of cover both ground.
3: Yeah, you know that that originally emerged because um, Googie Morning at first intended to be the return of Vacation Jason, the character that I did on the Chris Gethard show, and a character that brings me a lot of joy to play it's you know it's 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 brought me a lot of opportunity and crazy full circle mystical experiences have come have come out of just having fun playing that character and uh and it's also something that resonates with people i've I've written a lot of jokes that I didn't think were gonna work and people like it so it it just it it's it's uh it's not often that especially someone like me who You know, I get self-conscious and neurotic about whatever my career might turn out to be as a comedian. When I stumble upon something like Vacation Jason, it feels so validating and it feels so strike while the iron's hot kind of thing to, or like, it's just something I can return to. It's something that's like a, like a hit, you know? And I just realized like, you know, as much as I like doing this character and I feel like I have to put it down again, like I'll pick it up, make some music, put it down and it's just, especially with the rebellions and the, you know, the upheaval and everything, it just, as much as, as much as I get spiritually out of being a clown, I don't know. It just, I, I, it, the character of just like, everything's cool. Go on vacation. Just didn't strike a chord that was sitting well with me. So yeah, the show's kind of become an exercise for me and like trying to be a little bit more Myself, vulnerable from time to time, while also unpacking some of the things that uh, creatively turned me on in terms of like how I got to get to a point where I could do Vacation Jason or Klon. So I'll, you know, teach juggling like I used to at the summer camp I used to work at, or I'll, you know, host a music open mic for stupid songs that people just want to throw out there. And then I don't know, just trying to think of a way to be a little bit more um, I don't want to say like responsible, but I just like uh, find a way to inspire growth in oneself and also to kind of hold myself accountable to um, actively participating in my own growth uh yeah there's kind of a book club now. I I'm thinking of reducing the frequency of of uh of the, the the book club episodes just so everyone can catch up and won't have to go at such a fever pitch um to read but it's been nice to kind of let my mind wander after reading some thought provoking stuff and and surprisingly people seem to be uh receptive to I call it left brain episodes and right brain episodes and people seem to enjoy both. So that's what I'm doing right now.
2: And that, that kind of ties into you know, what I was talking about before with the, the kind of the journey the chaplain was forced to take, not just from a, a socio-political perspective, but also from an artistic perspective. I mean, we started this out talking about how that is, this is one of the last silent films, but it's not technically a silent film. And he didn't call it a silent film. It was a dialogueless film, but sound is in fact very important to this and deliberate. He, he wrote the film. He wrote a full script with dialogue for this film. And after shooting about a scene or two, he, he chucked it out. But he did have mics on set for this. And the choice of, you know, the use of sound is not just an add-on. He was very deliberate about the score. And there are audio gags in this film. I mean, this is, I, I'm not going to pretend to be a historian. I could be completely wrong. But this has got to be one of the first flatulence jokes in cinema. The, the bit with him and the woman with the T and the stomach gurgling. I loved it. I think it has to be. There's a lot of. I I I hate to use the word raunchy, but there is a surprising amount of of boundary pushing in this. That there's, you know, people think of silent films as very stodgy and very stiff, but you've got. You mentioned, you know, Chaplin trying to tighten the woman's nipples. Mm -hmm. Uh, you've got a gas joke, and you've also got a prolonged cocaine joke in this film.
3: Yeah, a really long cocaine joke. yeah. Yeah,
2: but it's interesting to watch him kind of evolve that way. The way you were talking about trying to figure out. I think you can see him trying to figure out how does humor work in these, to use the title, modern times.
3: Yeah, where where does the absurdity lie? And it's,
2: I, I you know, the, the fact that he uses the humor to point out real issues. I think uh, one thing I want to touch on is there's the great sequence where he is just trying to flag somebody down, but ends up getting swept up in a communist demonstration. And then in a scene that is still kind of jarring, when the police show up, they violently break up the strike which was so common in those times yeah and definitely feels uh you know finger on the pulse even now which is so impressive almost almost 100 years later
3: yeah i was watching that going damn i mean we have we have the uh the black lives matter protest and they're still going on but i was like damn wh- where's the where's the unionizing protests you know i mean let's let's prioritize but also i was just impressed to know that that's what a like a a pro-labor protest could look like.
2: Well, it was also such an interesting time. I like to point out to people when they talk about, you know, when when you look at the blacklist and you look at HUAC, you know, and how many people were brought before and are you a member of the Communist Party? It was a very different thing in the 1920s and the 1930s, not just to be intrigued by things like socialism. And this is not going to get into contemporary politics, but you know, at the time, it was a very different thing, a different attitude. I mean, obviously, it was more accessible insofar as not to be crest, But you, you know, you do always feel like any kind of post Trotsky Stalinist writing has this tone of no, but I promise this time it'll work. Whereas there was a lot more optimism in the 20s and 30s, not to mention as Chaplin himself pointed out when the US government was trying to call him in to name names he said look yes i was out making these pro-russia speeches but i was only doing it because the u.s government said go out and make these pro-russia speeches so that we can open a second eastern front in the war wow. like they were you know the soviet union were our allies in the 40s and this is kind of it was it was interesting I, I suppose in a way to look at the way the chaplain viewed it which is he often stated he was a citizen of the world and he was just open to other viewpoints uh i will i will get off the track of his european adventure but i do love the fact that in 1931 he's traveling europe and he meets with mahatma gandhi gandhi asked to meet with him wow. which gandhi had just gotten out of prison at this point um you know a has been all the luminous but he met with gandhi and when he sat down with gandhi Chaplin said to him and i have the quote here uh, I should like to know why you're opposed to machinery after all, it's the natural outcome of man's genius and is part of his evolutionary progress. It is here to free him from the bondage of slavery, to help him to leisure and a higher culture. so that was the view that Chaplin had in nineteen thirty one and then after his conversation with Gandhi, where Gandhi kind of expressed that no machinery and and industrialism is being used by the British to enslave the Indians we don't need that it's interesting that five years later he makes modern times a film that is very much not reflective of the viewpoint he's expressing in that quote um it's very much the opposite that's cool uh so it is interesting to watch his views evolve now tom was this your first time seeing this
1: oh no um i saw this in college but you know, it's one of those things. where so much time had passed, that I honestly forgot it was feature length. I thought it was one of his shorts because all I could remember was the stuff in the factory. You know, the iconic uh, scene of him going into the gears and everything. So it was pretty much like watching it uh, anew for the first time. It is wild how much of what he was going for in 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 his dissection of you know modern living with factories and where work has to define who you are. It's still you know it's still issues today if anything it it felt like it kind of dipped a bit and now it's back full force where amazon factories are making people work so hard they have to pee in bags at their stations but when this pandemic started and before the black Lives matters protest started amazon workers were trying to unionize and they started just breaking the pro they they were breaking it up uh you know it's it, it it really was wild watching this and being like jesus christ none of this really has changed and it seems like we're a good chunk of this country trying to force us back into that life of if you're not if you don't have a job that you don't work six days a week uh, you know 80 hours a week or whatever the hell you you're kind of worthless and um i also just one something that really took me by surprise was how he he, he gets into almost the, like how it's a thing that poor people will actually prefer to just go to jail instead of having to deal with living in the world where they can't get by. It's like, eh, I am I got a place to sleep. I got food. It's fine. Kind of took me by surprise.
2: The idea of food and the idea of hunger is so prevalent in this film. I mean, uh, obviously, there's the the whole portion of the film where he is working at the store. One of which I thought was a fun little in-joke is that when he and the woman go into the department store, uh, which is Paula Goddard, who was his wife at the time. When they run to the department store, she runs over to all the toys. The first toy she picks up is a Mickey Mouse doll, which is Chaplin making an inside joke about the fact that, you know, in the 20s, his rivals on screen, you know, in the and the 10s and 20s, his rivals on screen are Buster Keaton and Fatty uh, Arbuckle and all that. And by the 30s, so many of those silent comedians got it, his biggest comedic rival was this cartoon mouse. And of course, you have the great roller skating sequence where he's it looks like he's going to fall uh, off the ledge, which is itself uh, a camera trick. I don't know if you guys uh yeah. noticed that, but yeah, he he they yeah, used yeah. Yeah, he did a glass painting that's gone around on Twitter a lot, you know, to to show the edge. But I think what's most interesting in that sequence is that when he originally wrote the scene, the guys who were robbing the store, you actually saw them taking things of silver. But then he recognized later that that would make them criminals in the audience's eyes, and he wanted to show the audience that if somebody is resorting to theft it doesn't necessarily mean that they are a criminal so he has them instead just say we're only hungry and chaplin who grew up poor you know understands that hunger is crucial
1: uh you know is is a crucial motivating factor you know chaplin's a very warm-hearted guy you know he he you know puts the tramp through a lot of abuse but at the end of the day he there's a very there's a sense of warmth and understanding to chaplin's filmmaking that you know i think is very refreshing these days you know Especially we got so many complaints that you can't be funny anymore unless you're like making fun of minorities or gays or whatever. It's just like, no, you could be funny. You know, his stuff's been funny for like 80 years, 100 years at this point, And he ain't punching down anything. All of it. All of his work is punching up. I mean, yeah. the few stuff I've seen uh, of his, I'm no, uh, I'm not, I haven't completed his filmography, but he's very much like, no, the, for people on the bottom rung of society, the cops are bad. I mean, he's he's a cab, you know. It's because this, and then you know, like I saw the kid like a month ago, and you know, he, it's very much like, oh, the cops are here. This is not good for me because they're going to make my life worse. They don't understand because they're a part of the system.
2: I want to get on another topic, uh, which is Riley, because you're also, in addition to being a, a comedian, a very physical comedian and a clown, as you say, um, you're also uh, a musician. You know, you 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 play music. you, you like creating music, and Chaplin was very heavily involved in the score of this film. So I wanted to know from your perspective what you thought of the the, the way that he composed a score for this film.
3: I was surprised. I didn't know that. I learned just in the opening credits that uh, Chaplin composed his own scores. And uh, I actually, I made a short maybe a month ago and part of it has like a kind of a cliche silent movie moment. And I just went and found some royalty-free silent movie music. And it's just that old, you know, piano sound. Like from like a, you know, kind of evokes like twirling mustache, tire to the railroad tracks kind of sound. And I was um, surprised and delighted to know that like this was a full-on, almost orchestral composition. And it had variety and it had themes. It had, uh, you know, there was the, um, the song at the end it was intricate and it was uh it was engaging it wasn't just something that filled space and and most interestingly
2: this score features the song that would become most associated with chaplin because this is where he wrote the music that would become the song smile um you can hear it throughout the score that's na 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 na, na, na you know mm-hmm. and about 20 years later Chaplin is at this point practically chased out of the country uh by by the mccarthyites and some lyricists came along wrote the lyrics to smile jimmy duranti covers it it becomes a hit nat king cole covers it, it becomes a hit michael jackson covers it and then you know sure enough last year it uh it shows up in in joker it's this weird secondary legacy that Chaplin has
1: musically. Isn't this the movie they're watching at the museum at yes. the Joker? Yeah, I knew it was a Chaplin thing. I forgot if it was Modern Times.
2: <laughs> yeah, Modern Times is the film that is that is used because I think it's also trying to invoke this idea what the little tramp was so popular for is that he was this archetype that I don't know if we have culturally anymore, which was this idea that he was a Job-like character. He was a, a poor person who always got knocked down. He got back up again. But you knew that, you know, the movie was always going to leave him in the same spot he was, you know, that even if he inherits millions, he'll lose it by the end of the picture, you know, uh, whether it's City Lights uh, or Gold Rush, you know, you you kind of always leave the little tramp walking off into the sunset and people showed up for that. And I think that there was I, I don't know how to describe it because you could you know, it could be argued that there was a real empathy for the underprivileged that the tramp represents. But it also seems like a lot of the people who went to see it were equally underprivileged to a degree and going yeah that's how life is i do want to i do want to also make an observation that paulette Godard, uh one of my favorite moments in the film that doesn't necessarily land anymore because it's not we don't have that reference base is the first time we're introduced to Paulette Goddard, who's called the Gamine in this film, she's stealing food and giving it to kids in a very Robin Hood way, but he gives her a knife in her mouth that she's posed just like the Black Pirate, the, uh, the Douglas Fairbanks character, and he's kind of trying to draw a line between, well, if you're going to cheer on the pirates who are stealing things just to steal things, you have to cheer on the people who are stealing things to feed people, you know, which I think is interesting.
1: That's cool. I didn't catch that. Seems like a lot of decisions were made uh, every, everything you're looking at is meant to really get to what he's trying to say about you know living life uh, at the bottom rung of society. You know, so little things like that that you know may not translate 80 years later, or whatever. Uh, that well, we don't have Douglas Fairbanks references being tossed off these days on TikTok anymore, but uh, you know, those were the uh, days, yeah. <laughs> those were the days, but Douglas Fairbanks was everywhere. My heart would swoon. But yeah, I mean it just goes to show that every, you know the he as on a macro level, things work today, uh, but you know then you dig deeper and you go, oh, even on the macro micro things we're not really able to really notice unless we dive deep into it is informing what we're watching you know so even subconsciously like that's a smart decision i don't know why but that's that's good and i i think it's
2: interesting and and riley if you could speak to this a little bit that i mean you are a comedian who in your three clown specials were i mean you 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 did not give the character any real words to say until the third installment and you're a very physical performer yourself and then tom mentioned tiktok jokingly but you're seeing this rise of of young comedians who are either doing uh lip sync videos like Sarah Cooper and Maria De and so many young people who are who are doing these short form if not silent ostensibly dialogless pieces so from somebody who is a, you know a comedian and somebody who is a as you put it you know a clown how how do you see that do you see that shift back toward a more uh, physical kind of
3: humor well you know it's it's um it's attention grabbing you know especially when you're scrolling fast it's like changing channels um on a tv but you know, you could do it 200 times a minute, you know, if you really wanted to, and you're just scrolling, 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 and every video is muted. So you really got to do something dynamic and visually captivating to even get someone to stop and, you know, like, uh, unmute and pay attention long enough. So yeah, you know, it's it's just such a, a primal form of performance and expression that uh, it makes sense to me that like the channels that we are now afforded to, uh, express ourselves on, uh, on the internet have been so pared down that, you know, what we kind of have to act like, uh, parents of newborns to kind of catch your eye, you know, jingle some keys or make a big face or, you know, show a boob or something you know to like get this baby's attention and the baby is you know every every mindless scroller you know that's one aspect of it and then the other aspect I think is that there's you know whether it's like slapstick or dance or uh a combination of the two or you know just something a little bit more slice of life or if you just you know happen to be odd looking or attractive in some way I don't know there's 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 like a empathy in the visual you know you either see yourself in what you're seeing or you see yourself interacting with what you're seeing that's the great uh trick and the great secret to a lot of the physical performance that i quote unquote trained in you know whether it's something as simple as like doing object work miming in an improv scene opening a cabinet Or pouring a glass of water. It's just you want to make it realistic because people have seen that. And it puts you at ease to see something mimed accurately. You know, it really helps you get immersed in the scene. Or whether it's something like a parody of professional wrestling. All the little conventions of uh, a professional wrestling match help tell the story. And just get the audience not to think about the fact that these are Goofballs wearing Halloween costumes, you know, doing fake punches and kicks, but like there's a there's a story being told, or the theatrical clowning training that is so emphatic on making direct eye contact with the audience and reacting so um, genuinely and attentively to a laugh or a a movement or a uh, just a noise that an audience member is making, and it's all. You know, it, it's all about eliminating entirely that fourth wall. Same with the 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 comedy pro wrestling thing, where you are presenting so largely, so conspicuously to your audience that it's uh, it's kind of about bringing them in. So when I see like, you know, the rise of, uh, I guess it's another rise, but like you know, the same way Vine and TikTok kind of have these dance crazes or these physical comedians or like pranks. It's like, it's like, let me engage you like with something visceral. You know, it's not just, you know, it can be witty and it can be wordy and it can be a combination of a lot of things, but to grab someone's attention and make them feel something, uh, uh, physicality and visuals are just, uh, tough to beat. I mean, wh- you know, why is, why is Disney so evocative and effective? after you know close to a hundred years because they're they're like basically you know genius scientists in terms of like how do we get how do we access the child's mind whether it's an actual child or the child of an adult the child mind inside an adult mind you know and it has all these little tricks of just like the you know the the eyes have to be a certain proportion to the size of the head, and everything has to kind of flow in this animation style that just makes you really—it just hits you somewhere that uh, is is kind of more intricate than I think people want to give it credit.
2: I, I think that's interesting, and I wanna I wanna read one of Chaplin's quotes from A Comedian Sees the World, and, and get your response to it because what's fascinating about particularly that collection is Chaplin was a a, a talented writer and and essayist in a way i mean he was he notes in here that he's sitting down with with lady astor and the german members of the reichstag before two years before hitler becomes chancellor and he's making these passionate arguments in favor of eliminating the gold standard and providing a living wage for people in england so he's very verbose in that way and yet when they asked him about speaking in film which you would think he would want to do when he's making these impassioned pleas, the quote he gave was, For years I have specialized in one type of comedy, strictly pantomime. I have measured it, gauged it, studied. I have been able to establish exact principles to govern its reaction on audiences. It has a certain pace and tempo. Dialogue, to my way of thinking, always slows action because action must wait on words. So I wanted to know from somebody who went from a character that when you were doing, say, um, Vacation Jason on Chris Gethard's show, that was a lot of Improvised dialogue, a lot of speaking to a wordless character. I wanted to know what you
3: thought of that idea of action must wait on words. I wanted to do something that felt different with clon You know, uh, CGP, Chris Gethard presents, was like, I, I wanted to make sure that I was doing the first show on CGP that wasn't like a talk show format. All the brilliant stand up comedians and improvisers that, that come through, it's just comedy has gotten so wordy. At least, you know, like mainstream comedy, you know, whether it's all the political talk shows or stand up specials, just everything is so wordy, even the um, the wordiness of Vacation Jason, which I have a lot of fun with, you know, puns and just little plays on words. And, the you know, the tropes of like surfer dude stuff is so fun. But like I always prided myself on like the character works, I think, mostly because. You look at this guy and it's like, okay, you get it. I don't really, like, you hear the name, you see the colors I'm wearing, you see the goop on my nose, and it's like, you understand right away. And so I'm, I am think in an effort to just kind of tip the scales in my favor, it helps to work visually. I, you know, I think visually often when it, when something, when I think of something that makes me laugh, it's usually like a an image in my mind rather than like a funny uh written out turn a phrase or a concept and i just think it's it you know when 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 i have the opportunity to do a public access television show and i already have these kind of reservations about how smart or dumb i am and you know the ideas i want to get across let's try to let's blow this out visually let's blow this out conceptually you know i don't i'm not in i i wasn't then and i'm not now like in in like the headspace where I feel primed to deliver like a confessional or some kind of like riff on uh, the state of the world or like who I am as a performer. But like, I feel like if I could get visual and, and uh, a little bit physical and stupid with it, for lack of a better word, like, I feel like that, that, that was just a more pure, um representation of what i like to do
2: I, I think it's interesting that if you look at particularly what you're doing with clon you were satirizing particular industrialists whether it was with the with the uh the Brian Funglehead character was kind of you know at least felt very similar to a lot of those tech moguls you had and you you brought in a character at least in the first two installments who was almost a Susie orman business tv type whereas when you look at modern times what Chaplin was doing there in perhaps a uh, a throw to what his next film would be and how direct its satire would be uh the factory head who we see not just in his office but projected on the screens in a a proto 1984 way because that was obviously not uh you know a thing yet that that image of the giant face on the screen but he you know brings us that is modeled after henry ford because in the 20s chaplin actually got to tour one of henry ford's factories and while he was impressed by the technical marvels of it especially after his his tour uh for city lights he recognized just how dehumanizing it was and I think a great example of that in this film is when, uh, in the Return to the Factory, when his coworker is trapped in the gears, and Chaplin is feeding his his coworker, his trapped coworker, and he's you watch him. We watch as he uses a chicken as a as a coffee funnel, and he's asking in a way for empathy from the audience. He's asking the audience to actually favor his albeit goofy ingenuity over the kind of regularity and and rigidness of machinery and i was thinking about how that reflects even what you did in in Klaun in a way that that those three shorts are rooted in empathy uh, in a lot of ways it's it is asking the character the audience especially when the character is alone on stage asking the audience to connect to this character and find empathy in this character who we have been told repeatedly is a machine and who we are asked to you know who who we are told to ask to perform tasks and yet you know when it comes to that character alone you've you're armed with only the ability to smile and wave and you're asking the audience to connect with that
3: that character well yeah there's a, there's a couple things there uh, the the chicken has the funnel in modern times that's that's just like pure clown innovation you know um a clown is going to is going to imagine some dumb thing working and just try it and uh the, the best clowns and they they do it with full confidence you know him speaking or singing in gibberish not knowing the words that's that's just that's what clowns do they're just going to hop into a situation and go you know no I I'm an expert here I got this you know and the, and the, and we got to practice like an improvised version of that in Klon, where like just callers would call up and say hey can he do a headstand and I, no i can't do a headstand but can Klon do a headstand let's 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 find out you know and the the innovation thing where i was oh you know there there was a great touring clown show i saw it on broadway at the beginning of the year it's called slava's snow show i'm looking at the playbill right now it's one of the most maybe the most inspiring live shows i've ever seen but uh yeah look up there's like a documentary that national geographic did it's about a 30 minute documentary on youtube about slava s l a v a um but anyway you know there's there's a scene in this clown show where you know it's the sound it's the way the torrential rain and the sound of the waves of the ocean and all this fog and these bright blue lights and this this bed frame gets pushed onto the stage and it's, and it's got a broomstick and a, and a big sheet as a sail. And they're just, they, they, you know, right in front of you, they're making you believe that this bed frame and this pole and this sheet are a ship sailing and, you know, they get thrown overboard and they're swimming back onto the boat. And, um, I don't know, I guess just in, uh, I know there's an example somewhere in Klon of just like all those little solo moments where Brian Funglehead leaves the stage and, and Klon imagines that he's in a restaurant being served by a human or he's, um, you know, he's he's having a drink and a honky tonk with a drunk baby. You know, it's just there. that It's just we all know this is a mostly bare stage here and this is just a public access studio. But we're going to just through confidence, goofy innovation and imagination just kind of, and empathy, uh, make you believe something for a minute.
2: And that's also, you know, you mentioned the, that being able to make something out of very little, that's a real testament to Chaplin in, and what kind of, I think, separates him from some of the other silent acts of the time. Uh, and I don't mean to sound negative on them, but, you know, Buster Keaton was known as, as a stone face. And Harold Lloyd, when we think of Harold Lloyd, he's hanging from the clock and Chaplin could do so much with so little, even though he builds this grandiose forced perspective factory that feels that feels like it it fell right out of Fritz Lang's metropolis. Some of the best known Chaplin gags are just the him doing a little physical. Fork. Exactly. The potatoes on the forks and the gold rush. Even watching him do the roller skating gag in the uh what we, in the department store. Yes, you have the the joke of the ledge uh there. Uh, but that's, you know, forced perspective. It's mostly just watching this silly physicality you mentioned the song i mean he's mostly just standing still and doing arm motions but it just that bit lands and he doesn't need any kind of set for that he doesn't need anything he's just doing a bit doing little backslides with his foot uh doing a song that i i couldn't help but i don't know how you feel about this tom but to me all i could think of with that song is nino rota's score for the end of fellini's eight and a half now fellini was a huge clown fan and a big physical comedy fan. So I cannot imagine that that's a coincidence that that end song that plays in an eight and a half when all of Guido's friends and, and ex-lovers are coming
1: by and dancing it felt so similar. Uh, those Italians back in the day when Fellini and them were making movies, they they came up watching this stuff. So I, I'd have to say 100% that he was definitely thinking of this movie when he was doing that. This is this is one of those
2: ones, you know, when we do this show and I, I'll i say this, rightly because we've done a couple of these episodes now, we're always trying to figure out and get to the heart of, of, you know, help people understand why this film, these films still matter. And sometimes, you know, you look at a film and, and you really have to make a case for like, oh, well, but if you look at this, you can see how it is. But with this, I think you you see the influence of. Not just Chaplin, but this film in particular, so much in so many ways that, I mean, it's so, this is, I, I wrote my notes that this is, this movie is the bridge between uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis and then later uh, Jacques Tati's entire filmography, but particularly Playtime. And you also see it, I mean, um, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simon de Beauvoir named their publication, um, I'm going to mispronounce it, but Le Temps Moderne. After modern times, like it, it had an influence, not just in comedy circles, but in social ju- what we call social justice circles. Now, I, I think it's this is one of those ones where you clearly see. And I'm not sure if you can think of any examples yourself, but there's so many influences, even if they come around, and would be something where I think that one of your films is or one of your works is influenced by it. And, and it's
3: not necessarily directly, but there is certainly
2: a, a, a similar DNA.
3: Well, yeah, it's just, you know, again, like I'm woefully uh ignorant almost willfully ignorant because i get self-conscious about um you know like specific influential works especially like when i'm in the middle of like trying to craft my thing even even not having the specific beats of the scenes to draw from even just knowing that uh, i can combine very basic uh clowning technique with some kind of social commentary about how absurd uh, the working world is, how absurd the industrial world is, like the advertising world, all of that. I just know that that, I just almost instinctually knew that was possible. And I knew that I was putting my spin on it, but not innovating. I just knew that, I mean, like if I could, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say Klon very in a small way is kind of in that traditional lineage of just like physical performance illustrating the absurdity in in uh uh modern times how about that
2: now real quick cuz i know you got to go do you have any other observations you want to make before we before we wrap
3: up i just think uh don't underestimate clowns you know like it's uh it's such a it's such a potent symbol you know it's and it's so ubiquitous that people will go like ah Clowns right it's okay like that's that's everyone's uh, that's the passerby's instinct is to is to dismiss the clown or to uh, ridicule a clown that's you know that's that's what it's there for but you know there's 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 a lot of layers to it there's a lot of intricacies to it and it's the clown that'll that'll uh, catch you off guard and make you pay closer attention to life you know like i think cool comedians and and uh you know people who cross their arms will uh just out of instinct want to refuse the opportunity to be entertained by a clown but i don't know it it, it's 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 just such you give it a chance and you end up seeing and hearing something pretty powerful you know whether it's Chaplin, everyone knows what the hat and the cane and the mustache look like and it's easy to go like well how how is that the most influential guy in in cinema you know and, but you just watch it and you just see the roots sprouting out from everywhere groucho glasses you know everyone puts on groucho glasses and it's hack or honks a horn and it's hack but it's like there's a reason why it works and it's, and it's cause it's funny and it's cause it grabs your attention. And it's also cause they were intelligent about it. They were masters of a, a craft, you know, they were very disciplined about it. Pee Wee Herman. I don't know. Um, I'm jumping around now. Jim Carrey. They, they, you know, it's, it's easy to be a, a class clown, I guess, you know, and just be goofy. But like when you really inspect uh, the artistry, behind these guys like it goes deep I don't know I'm I'm a fan trying to be a student when I can afford it and when I when I when I when there isn't a pandemic keeping me inside but uh it it unlocks something pretty special and unique in um in my heart to be a little sappy about it and I'm so grateful that uh I was given an opportunity to to do that on 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 a platform where like I now have these YouTube specials that I can I can just save and send to people and and just I feel like I have proof that that type of stuff works if you put the work in and uh I don't know I would love to get the chance to do that kind of stuff again because it's a it's a different it's a different kind of feeling from just trying to be witty and clever and there is wit and cleverness in there but like the the extra Sauce of uh trying to be innovative trying to be empathetic um i feel like is is necessary and is lacking in a in a lot of uh what i see shortly uh, r- roughly
2: uh maybe a week after we decided we were doing this show i knew you were the person i wanted to come on for this film in particular and i'm so glad that you you agreed to come on and i'm so glad that we uh we got you to see this film which is you know such a such a staple
3: thank you um yeah, I'm excited to get to work. Uh, you know, a great dictator. Let's go.
2: Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Riley. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm so glad to have you on. Folks uh, can check out Googie Morning every Saturday morning at 11 on Planet Scum Live. And do you have any socials you want to plug? Anything else you want to?
3: Yeah, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Riley Soliner. And uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Just uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't post that often. It's fine. Maybe I'll do a TikTok now.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you
0: Something I've always found fascinating with Chaplin and particularly modern times is I think it's something that regardless of what sort of preconceived notion or judgment you may have on on film, uh, Chaplin seems to just be timeless i mean it's not something that someone watches and go okay like i I don't understand the big deal like there's always there's some inherent value in it
2: regardless of your background i have always found it very frustrating and uh, tom can attest like we knew people like that even in film school who very much had this attitude of like i find silent movies boring i don't watch silent movies because they're boring and old and they seem to treat it as though all movies were crap until sound came along and I think that you're right. There is something timeless about Chaplin and particularly with this film. It's it's about how he understands he can use sound. We watch him use sound a lot, whether it's the corn rotating or the flatulence, but he's not using it as a crutch. You know, he's using it as a way to to accentuate the comedy that he already knows. And I, I think that uh, to to invoke our title, people who have that kind of attitude toward silent films genuinely are missing out when it comes to particularly. The Silence of Keaton or Chaplin or, or or some of those.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, this it, this is some of the easiest cinema you could watch. There's not much, it, there's no barrier that you have to really know. Like, you don't have to know everything about life in the 30s or the 20s or whichever Chaplin movie you're watching. You could kind of just have a broad sense of understanding of where this is coming from. And then just watch these masterfully crafted set pieces of physical comedy. I mean, it's stuff that went through the Three Stooges, the Looney Tunes. I mean, to you know, it's it, it, it's not hard. And it, it really is just a sense of stubborn... Qu- there's a stubborn quality to people that won't watch it because this is easier than even a lot of movies made today, to be honest, of just, oh, Jesus Christ, this is going to take forever where you watch Chaplin thing and you go, oh, this is... Yeah, this is like felt like it could have been made yesterday if there's nothing to it as much as complicated as it is, it's also there's not much to it that's keeping me at arm's length.
2: But it, yeah, I, I agree. There's there's something to it that is very uh, and not just timeless because, oh, it's so well made or anything, but because physical humor. And this is something that, that I was very happy to have Riley on because Riley touched on that as well. You know, I mean, the idea of the clown has endured because it is something that can play to any audience, you know, and and admittedly, there are certain things that a contemporary audience, maybe in the most traditional sense of how we understand a clown in the very bright colored costumes and all that, maybe some of those things uh, don't resonate with contemporary audiences, but, but the, the physicality still lands. Physical humor still plays quite well. I mean, you see it in The Descendants, like you know Jacques Tati, if you, if you watch uh, Mr. Hewlett's Holiday or Monsieur Hewlett's Holiday or, or Playtime, or you look at another example, of course, Mr. Bean. You know these 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 bits still work, and the thing is they they don't need subtitles, they don't need translating. They play. Look at what I was saying. You know when you look at comedian sees the world, which is a, I highly recommend to anybody. Great book. Uh, comedian sees the world that was edited by Lisa Steinhaven. Just want to give credit there. Comedian sees the world. I mean Chaplin was adored by everyone from Albert Einstein to Mahatma Gandhi. And they all watched his films and laughed, you know, and and those are people you don't necessarily picture uh, going to see what was treated as a goofy comedy at the time. As always, uh, what film would you want to add to the registry? Okay, so I was thinking about, you know, what to add to the registry, uh, you know, obviously, again, the parameters, it's it's not already there and it's at least 10 years old. I was thinking about there is a short film because one of the things I love about the National Film Registry is it's not just features, it's shorts, it's cartoons, it's it's serials there's a short film from 1988 called technological threat it's an animated short it was produced by bill croyer and it the film depicts a an office full of what look like tex avery-esque cartoon wolves and when a worker in that office becomes exhausted and can't complete their work uh the boss played by bulldog presses a button and drops them down a trap door and they're replaced by a robot and the film depicts this one wolf worker Uh, valiantly trying to stave off the encroaching technological threat uh, and not be replaced by machines but why i think this film is so fascinating and what made me think of modern times is is not just the use of machinery but the fact that the film is a meta commentary on animation because the wolf workers that you see in the film are all hand-drawn but the robots were created using computer-generated 3d models uh so it is a film from 1988 that is very accurately predicting The encroaching obsolescence of hand-drawn animation in the face of computer animation, which now, I mean, you don't see hand-drawn films really ever. And if you do, they're mostly foreign imports from G-Kids, and and even Disney is is almost entirely CGI now. So Technological Threat in 88 is already predicting that that's what's going to happen. Now, interestingly enough, Technological Threat was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Short, but it lost to pixar's landmark cgi short tin toy the first fully cgi animated film from from pixar so it it kind of predicted its own uh, its own loss as well as the animation industry's loss so i think for what it represents particularly if you look at the things that the uh that the registry has put in like the old mill and a computer animated hand and some of these shorts and, and the advances of the show i think the technological threat uh very much lines up with the ideas of modern times and and uh very much earns its place in the registry.
1: Since we got to stick with America, that means I I can't put up any Jackie Chan flicks because, well, that's pretty obvious, and I'm sure shit not uh, putting up Rush Hour. Although I could be meta about it and do Shanghai Nights, which has Charlie Chaplin as a character in it. Um, But But then you're arguing that Shanghai
2: Nights should be in the National Film Registry.
1: I don't know. I mean, have you seen Shanghai Nights? It's it's a Um, (laughs) toss-up. I wanted to go a little... a little sideways and not go for something that's about the physicality or the comedy or anything and i wanted to go for the themes he's working with about the life uh on the working class living poor having to throw your life into work and all of that and how dehumanizing it could be and how money turns people against you know each other and all that and how just just life for those at the bottom rung of the ladder is not easy and is kind of made to not be easy. And um, this is a movie I had watched uh, recently. It was released uh, with, it got a great criterion release made by one of the great unsung masters of cinema, uh, John sales. I'm going to put up mate one, his um, 1987 movie about uh, a union uprising and a union war that broke out in the uh, early 1900s um, i just think it's one of the most well-observed well-written as is usual with john Sayles, well-directed just emotional and very uh, intelligent look at modern living uh in a, in a world that is built around work and how the poor have to work and your life is based around work and you can't just, just all these things that I feel like um, Chaplin was getting at comedically in uh, this movie uh, is something that uh, Sales, fifty years later, uh, took very seriously. And uh, movie that knocked me out when I saw it uh, recently. And uh, yeah, Mate Wan should be uh, in the National Film Registry because uh, Sales is the man.
2: I I haven't seen it, but I'm I'm excited to. And that's that I know is like an. Early Chris Cooper film, too, right?
1: Yeah, it's uh, Cooper was one of his guys, and it's one of his early ones. Yeah, it was almost kind of a toss up between that or another sales movie, uh, Eight Men Out, which is da- tackling the same shit from but from a different angle. And, um, Madawan's the one that you got, I, I think, needs to be in m- over Eight Men Out. I think Mattawan's pretty, uh, stunning achievement in my mind.
2: Fantastic. And you know, hang on to that because if you've got union stuff to talk about next season, we do Harlan County, USA. So we're going oh, well, to be. And, oh, wait, we've got Grapes of Wrath this season, too. We're going to be circling the the labor issues for a while here on the waterfront. We're going to be down this rabbit hole for a while.
0: Thank you for listening. And thanks to Riley Soliner for joining us. You can watch his show, Googie Morning, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on Planet Scum Live on Twitch. Follow him on social media at Riley Soliner. You can also follow our co hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at Raging Bull 1990. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you know someone who might make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.